0: It's time to ride the funk train. Now listen here, folks. This is Funk Master V of the TV show Wrestling with Ghosts. I'm a pro wrestler. I'm a booty shaker. I'm a lip smacker. And let me tell you, I love independent television. Now, Cat here at Paranormal Heart is letting me talk to you for a second about Television. A S Y television look it up soon it will be on roku fire stick apple tv and online for a cheap low price you can watch hundreds and hundreds of shows including scary shows like my own wrestling with ghosts or food shows like go there eat that best day ever the ufo show with amy dumas the list goes on and on it's asytv.com check it out now asytv Welcome to Paranormal Heart, a place where people can talk about their paranormal experiences. With your host, Cat Ward, along with a special segment, Oddities with John Mallard.
1: Welcome back, folks, to Paranormal Heart. You already know where to find us, but for you new listeners, you can find us on the second and last Sunday of each month on Podbean and YouTube. You can also find us on SparkRadioNet.work, iTunes, Stitcher, Podchaser, and anywhere you find fine podcasts. Well, guys, I tell you, Mother Nature is certainly not herself right here in the Ottawa Valley. The weather has been crazy here this past week. Just last week, we had three days of being in an extreme heat advisory. And when you factor in the humidity, it was brutal. The highest it got was 35 Celsius, which is, I think, about 95 degrees Fahrenheit. But when you factor in the humidity, it reached 42 degrees Celsius, or, uh, let's see, uh, 104 Fahrenheit, if my math is correct. There were a few thunderstorms in Ontario due to this heat. We had a couple of thunderclaps here in Ottawa Valley, but... Nothing serious. So that happened, and on Saturday, it was at the other end of the spectrum. We had a frost advisory. Yep, stupid heat, then frost. The heat we had was unusual for this time of year, but yes, here in Canada, it can get that hot in the summertime. This episode's shout-out goes to my listeners in my home country, Canada. The majority of you wonderful listeners are all over the world, but I have to thank my fellow Canadians, too. Thank you, Merci beaucoup, and please like, share, subscribe, and follow. Well, folks, has have some sad news. I have to announce that the oddities this episode will be the last one. There may be the odd one here and there as a special segment, but after this one, oddities will be laid to rest. I'd like to thank John Mallard, Steve Stockton, and Dixie Cryptid for contributing to the show and giving us great stories. I appreciate you all so very much. And now, for the last time, here is Oddities with John Oddball Mallard. Over to you, John. Hey,
0: Oddballs. Welcome to Oddities. Strange facts about an odd, odd world that are quite true. My name is John, and I'm sure by now you guys have probably heard about, well, these murder hornet things. And you know what? It's about time someone picked up for my little tiny friends who are actually related to common wasps and are very, very important to ecosystems in Asia. Uh, hence the actual name of a murder hornet, which is Asian Giant Hornet. As you can probably tell from my demeanor, I'm kind of mad. And I'm going to tell you why. I don't like it when people make fun of my friends. I also don't like it when people, you know, kind of spread around bullshit. And, uh, yeah, that's what this whole murder hornet thing is. It's bullshit. So I'm here to blow the lid off it for you guys. And, uh, to be honest, I'm going to give you guys some amazing facts about the world's largest hornet. Which, which, you know, is kind of creepy when you look at it. It's definitely nightmare fuel for a lot of people. But the problem is, this whole thing's a hoax, man. This whole thing's a hoax. They don't pose a threat to us. Asian hornets do not pose a threat to us. They pose a threat to ecosystems and they certainly pose a threat to our honeybee colonies. That's for sure. But these things, they can't hurt us at all. They have a pretty painful sting, but reality is they're not going to touch you unless you screw with their nest. You know what I mean? Anyway, here's what you need to know. Their name isn't a lie. The Asian giant hornets are positively huge. These insects measure almost two inches long and have a stinger that's almost a quarter of an inch long. That, along with a highly toxic venom, Gives them some serious stinging power. In fact, when people get stung by multiple giant hornets, there's a good chance they'll die. But you see, this is where the bullshit begins. Because guess what? You literally gotta go all Thomas J on my girl and step on their f- shit. Okay? So there you go. I said it. One Japanese entomologist who's been stung by one of these hornets said it's like having a hot nail being driven into my leg. Because, you know, Asian people do that all the time, apparently. Look... The way the Asian giant hornets actually consume honeybees is a little crazy, though. And that's kind of like where they get their big scary mystique from. These guys actually raid the hive, and they slaughter every worker, the queen, everything they get their hands on. And then, yeah, dirty, 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 dirty hornets. They actually make a lunch at a larva. Yeah, they chew up the baby bees making a gooey paste that they didn't take to their hive and feed their own larvae. The adult hornet, however, doesn't absorb any of the paste. It just gives every gooey bit to the larvae. From there, the hornet baby digests the paste to power its own growth. So what does the giant hornet actually eat? Let's just say that for Asian giant hornets, getting lunch is as easy as taking candy from babies. After the adult feeds the colony larvae, it's quickly payback time. As a hornet larva digests the mashed potato version of the honeybees, it starts to secrete a high energy saliva. And that saliva is just what the adult hornet was waiting for. The adult actually laps a baby drool. These things feed. So, so just, just put this in your mind. They regurgitate for the babies. The babies eat what's been regurgitated. The babies then drool and then they eat the drool. You know, I'm sorry, but how the hell did that evolve? <laughs> actually evolved from ants, like every other wasp. But anyway, that's beside the point. The adult laughs up the baby drool, which contains all the nutrients a full-grown Asian hornet, actually needs to survive. Like we said, it's like taking candy from a baby, baby. So there you go. These poor hornets, they've been dragged through the mud. You know, they've been spotted in the U.S. People are freaking out calling them murder hornets. They're not murder hornets. they are They're more like... Slaughter hornets towards bees. Are they dangerous to humans? Any kind of insect is dangerous to humans if it gets stung multiple times and you do something really stupid. Like, oh, I don't know, run naked towards one of their hives and decide to try to have sex with it or something. Yeah, maybe then you might die. But reality of it is, let's take the murder hornet out of their name. They're not murder hornets. The giant Asian hornets, goddammit. And they're definitely odd. For more odd, weird stuff like this, make sure you guys check out the the Newfoundland Paranormal Podcast. And that's all the buzz about the, you know, not-so-murdering hornet. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and say it on a calm, gentle giant, Asian hornets. Have a great day.
1: Thanks so much, John. My next guest has researched cryptozoology for the past 25 years, author of Beasts of Britain, He's also working on a TV series under the same name. He's a speaker and presenter and has a great documentary called Sticks and Stones, UK Bigfoot. You can find that on YouTube. He's also working on other fascinating books on mysterious creatures we call cryptids. I'd like to welcome Andy McGrath. Hello, Andy. Welcome to Paranormal Heart.
2: Hi. Hi, Kat. How are you doing? Happy to be here.
1: I'm so happy that you're here. Uh took some time. My apologies. I got the uh, time zone a little confused today, uh, but we're here.
2: I think it's that our jumps back, our jumps forward difference happens at different oh, points in the right. year in different parts of the world. It does. So there's a point where we're six hours difference and there's a point where we're five hours different. And there's a point where we've switched over and you guys haven't yet. I think it's a little gap. I forget the date, but there's a little gap. Uh, we're at six and five, but we're not quite sure where the crossover is. But it's happened now, definitely. Okay. <laughs> yes, I never even thought
1: after. of that. Yes. Oh yeah, well, but yeah. we're here.
2: Yes, yes, I'm very happy to be too.
1: So I had heard you on uh, Brian Bowden's show with uh, Ron Murphy. I think Ron Ron was on there as well because he's yes. not always on. He's not always on Nobubumi. Absolutely love that interview and i just had to contact you and uh, have a chat with you as well.
2: Well, i'm very happy that you did. Love Ron and Brian of course, um brothers from other mothers and all that. Yes. that um kind of stuff. They are two guys after my own heart. They're all hard and completely genuine and that's uh, that's something that's lacking sometimes in in these realms in which we inhabit. So it's, it's nice to always have it direct and on the chin and with the kind of care and tact they put into it too. It's very, very lovely.
1: Agreed. Um, I refer to Brian as Uncle Brian. Uh, we're not even related. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, Ron, oh, yeah, he, he's amazing too. I just interviewed him not too long ago, um, the crypto guru himself. But, no, yeah. um, I also watched your um, documentary, Sticks and Stones UK Bigfoot. Brilliant. <laughs> And I absolutely love your approach to your investigations. What really drew me to um, your your style when I heard you on Nobubumi was uh, when you mentioned that you put apples out and uh, people say, oh, the next day the apples are gone, Bigfoot took them. Well, no, there are yeah. other creatures in the forest who actually <laughs> eat apples, so it's not necessarily Bigfoot. And I thought, oh, what a wonderful approach. I love that's That's my way of thinking as well, because I'm also a paranormal yeah. investigator. So I don't always um, react just because I get um, whatever evidence I have. I'm, I also want to look behind the evidence. So I really, really like that. So please do tell us more about your research.
2: Well, that particular, um, when I first started getting into uh, British Bigfoot, at least, and it was something—it's a phenomenon I was very unaware of. I'd heard one or two reports in the past, but i, I just saw them as kind of pop culture, urban legends, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I met a lady called uh, Deborah Hatswell, a guy called Neil Young—you might recognise from the British Finding Bigfoot British episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I had this sighting up in the Howard Forest. Very nice guy, Deborah Hatswell, Very nice lady. And a few others in the community as well. And she would created this map. She was a Bigfoot witness in the 1980s in the south of a place near Manchester, of all places, um, near the River well, in a country park. She'd had this teenage sighting of this Bigfoot-like creature before she even knew what a Bigfoot was, and um, you know it affected her whole life. So she'd gone searching, and eventually she joined the British Bigfoot Research Group, uh, which was founded by Adam Bird, and. She had started to create this map over time, you know, uh, finally moved to Google and it pinpointed each site around the the country and published the witnesses' testimony in their own words. Sometimes first-hand, sometimes second-hand reports, wherever she could find them. Sterling job, a wonderful lady. And um, I started looking to to, and, and talking to some witnesses and I was like, wow, this is amazing. But all of the groups I noticed some some of the American groups as well for the people going out and looking for Bigfoot I started to notice that all of the pages were full of pictures of Sticks basically, mm-hmm. you know sticks in X-shaped sticks in funny configurations on the ground Pinned arches and spent arch that seems to be pinned with another tree and or Curled branches things that seem to be woven or wrapped around things And I thought why have there so many pictures of sticks, and I, I realised it was because people were attributing these stick signs to to Bigfoot. Now, I did go I did go searching for these things in the early days, and and logging them. And I actually had a, a night investigation with a guy called John Spence in a small, uh, a relatively small patch of forest in Surrey, where we, we found not only many X's and. You know, log jumbles, I call them all uh, sticker a plunks you know, where they're all jammed in at different angles. Mm-hmm. We also found tiny pinned arches that were, you know, supported with uh, with actual sticks uh, from other branches. They were lifted up and supported. I thought this is very curious. There's definitely somebody doing this. But in that same forest, we found bushcraft shelters. We also found um, bushcraft wood stored in different trees, a very... Uh, very uh, carefully and, and preparedly. And I just went to forest after forest after forest. And what I noticed was is that in all of the forests where there are the close human presence or there could be human um, interaction with the forest, in, in the sense of bushcrafters or loggers or forestry workers just cleaning things away, especially in the forest here, there were lots of stick signs. And in all of the forests, as in the ones we went to in Galloway Forest, eh, which is a 400-square-mile national park uh, in in Scotland, which is basically unpeopled, all of the forests there are, are sodden, and the moss is about a foot and a half thick, and there's ticks everywhere, and it's all this kind of pine, as well as the new forest, but it's a very unpleasant place to be. Nobody bushcrafts there, nobody camps out there, because it's such an unpleasant camping area.
3: Mm-hmm. There are
2: no travellers, uh, Irish gypsy folk that, that use that area either. There were no stick signs anywhere, but there were deer and there were other, other things that Bigfoot could eat and lots of forest cover. And yet, and there have been sightings in the area too of, of Bigfoot-like creatures, um, and yet there were no stick signs. No stick signs at all. And I thought, that surely, if, at least as far as the investigation goes, this is proof positive that these normally made by people now that's not to say they can't be made by Bigfoot and I know there are some very Large examples of these very same things in the u.s. In certain places people are attributing to Bigfoot But the one thing that stands out Is that they weren't there where there was no human interaction and also In the places where there was human interaction we were not finding footprints in the ground around these stick teepees and structures. We were not finding hair or scat or anything else that would indicate the presence of a creature that could be up to 400 pounds plus in weight, you know, there was nothing like that. And surely if this big, heavy, even uh, as as small as the British Bigfoot is purported to be comparatively, uh, five to eight feet tall maximum, it would still leave some trace of itself. And nobody was looking. Nobody said, oh, look, here's a Bigfoot sign, this X or this teepee. Why don't we look on the floor to mm-hmm. see where it stood It was such a, a Sort of an elephant in the room Why are you looking at this Why isn't anybody checking yes. I kept proposing in the groups Why don't you check on the ground Take a lightweight casting kit with you You know with the self insulated Minimally expanding insulating foam And a piece of cardboard And a, and a paperweight or a rock you can, you can cast a print in five minutes Take stuff out with you Take little baggies and tweezers And gloves for hairs Nobody's doing it And it's because the sticks are a feeder pill. Everybody can go out into the wood and find sticks in strange configurations. And you get a feeder pill. I found evidence of Bigfoot. Bigfoot is in my area. Look, the forest people are back again. The sticks are different today. And I made a joke about it at the time saying, like, unfortunately, we can't see the trees for the woods. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That Mm -hmm. saying is really, it's really, um... It's really poignant here to say we can't sit the trees for the woods. We just, we just don't really know what we're doing here. We don't know how wrapped up in this um, in this practice we've become to the point where it's kind of religious. You know, it's given us a religious um, a religious uh, experience of, of of a kind. Um, so yeah, unhappily stands here. You know, if you find sticks in the woods, it, it's only evidence of trees. And that was my final yes. take on it, and I got a lot of flack for it because, again, you know, you're really questioning people's belief. We know when it's belief because they become angry, because who wouldn't be angry by you questioning some del- uh, some reality that they come to believe in? It's um, it's not comfortable and it's not very pleasant.
1: No, I think people want to find they they want to believe so badly. That they're finding evidence, and I say evidence in quotation marks,
2: mm. everywhere
1: is that they look, and they're not questioning the evidence.
2: Yeah, that's right, that's right. And by the way, Ken, it could be evidence. It's just not evidence in and of itself. Mm-hmm. That it could be, you know, a, a, a complementary form of evidence and it, uh, a corroborative evidence of some kind. I found this A glyph on the floor, and there was a stickling and. Trees that seemed to be pushed into a sort of X and below that was this huge footprint, not made by a person.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, wide, sort of large long foot, deep into the ground. I cast it. Here we go. You can see the dermal ridges. You, know, you can see all these very unusual um, elements of uh, non-human bipedal uh, foot morphology that should be present there. But now nobody's even looking. Nobody even cares. I even put out a challenge about a year ago to say, this is the kind of equipment that you need. Let's all get out into the woods like we are anyway Mm
3: -hmm. and try
2: to find some tracks around these stick signs and nothing. Nobody even disputed it, (laughs) but nobody came back to me. And I thought they're not doing it because they know they're not going to be able to find anything. Now there's over 500 anecdotal reports, witness reports here in the UK. I'm not doubting the witnesses. That's not my job. I'm just saying this form of evidence in relation to the corroborating those particular um, sightings is is just not valid at present with what we know so far.
1: Yes, I um before anyone uh, starts getting too excited, I'm not uh, questioning people's encounters or what they believe they've they've seen. I'm just asking for people to um, again, once you've come across evidence, Look for other evidence as well. As you said, look Mm. for footprints or scat or something. Or um, have you ever considered? um, um, You said there was lots of ticks. Uh, Have you ever um, collected ticks as well to see what they've been feeding on, and perhaps looking at the DNA in in that respect?
2: I haven't. um, One because I I don't really like to put myself in that close proximity
3: to ticks, even
2: when we were there in Scotland. I... I was practically drinking that, that tick spray to honest with you. Oh. <laughs>
3: um,
2: because, I mean, I know it, it smells dreadful, but I don't want to have tick-borne encephalitis or Lyme disease. I
3: don't it's blame you. It's
2: very, very unpleasant. And, you, you know, you keep that crap alive. Um, yeah. So, no, I haven't. But I also don't have access to testing facilities, to test yeah. those things. And I know where I could get it. It's incredibly expensive and um, and lengthy process to go through.
1: Sorry, I hear someone in the kitchen scraping pots. Oh, (laughs) yeah! If you you hear that in the background.
2: (laughs) I know I can't hear that. (laughs) Okay,
1: I hear it through my headset. The headset picks everything up.
2: You've put him to work.
1: Yes, I think maybe perhaps someone's preparing supper, which I'm not complaining because I don't have to do it. (laughs)
2: That's okay. I can't hear it,
1: by the way. Okay, good. Let's hope the audio doesn't as well.
3: No, Um, no,
2: no,
1: no. Were you, um, like, for the... um, the documentary, you said there was lots of moss. Um, even if there were Bigfoot there, would you actually be able to find footprints? Because the moss, uh, it would probably be very difficult for any footprints to be able to, to stay because the moss would just kind of, it's so spongy.
2: In the pine forests, it was very, very wet. And that's where it was very mossy because they generally tend to have sort of troughs in between the, the roots. And yes, I don't think so. Although there were many places where if something... Heavy had stepped in where it was quite wet, and muddy too. or would have stayed for some time, which we noticed with our own footprints. We didn't want mm. to capture it on camera, but were many areas where they it could be captured in there, as uh, so you have these kind of peaks and troughs in the plantation pine, which I, I think would have been very, very valid. Um, there are there are obviously very varied woods and forests in this area too that we visited, and there it's it's muddier, but still full of ticks it's an unpleasant place to be and I think this is because of the large deer population in Scotland and um, it's just a very wild place where uh, for the most part you know you still have um, the animals rule the roost and that's um, that's the way it should be. Now one of the funny things we had there actually even as we hiked over the mountain in the middle of the night to do this uh, night investigation as we come out into this, this big open area, we could see as the sun came up over the hills and there's a point at the beginning of the documentary where it actually it opens with the end of this night hike. I'm standing there and the sun comes up over, um, over the hills beyond. I was actually covered in midges, these tiny, tiny biting flies that you get in Scotland oh, by the yeah. thousands. And trying to keep still (laughs) and look Uh. focused but I was just desperate to wipe my face off it's even like that so even in the daytime you know you're walking through swarms of midges and then there's ticks and um yeah wet your feet are wet from all of the spongy spongy moss it's just not pleasant it is very there are animals there of course there may be bigfoot there there's been several sightings in this area which I can't corroborate but the anecdotal sightings that seem interesting but you know it's um it's not a great place for stick signs, and i just i really thought well perhaps this is because they don't make them maybe we make them and that's what we're we're describing here in the uk at least
3: anyway Mm -hmm.
1: I wonder if um if Bigfoot is as intelligent as uh, many believe perhaps Bigfoot doesn't even want to live in that environment because of the ticks. Well, who knows?
2: Yet yeah, who knows? There's the possibility, but of course, as far as our anecdotal reports go, there are sightings
3: mm-hmm.
2: in in the Scottish Highlands, you know, quite a few significant ones. There's a very good witness um that was in Christopher Turner's elusive documentary called Charmaine Fraser, uh, who witnessed one in Scotland, I believe it may have been in Ayrshire, Also, I'll have to check on that for you. As a child, she witnessed one in the forest, and she was she was I think she was off to to get something for her grandparents, and as she was returning, she saw the back of this big, tall, hairy hominid <coughs> standing, you know, with his back turned to her in the forest. Terrified and stayed with her for the rest of her life. Um, there was also very recently I received a report in um, in Ayrshire, also um, in a place called near ba- Balmenach Farm, uh, which is um, it's in the hamlet of Straton in Ayrshire or Stratton, of some poachers being in a forest overnight and and running for help to a, a local farm. Uh, Saying that they'd witnessed a very, very um, tall man-like creature on two legs, bipedal, very big and looming in the forest at night in the dark. uh, They thought around nine feet tall, but she had wondered if perhaps it was shorter. That was a a state of shock that they were in. But clearly, it's something big and dark and bipedal and scary in size had run them out of the forest. Um, she even this uh, this local lady lived in this farm, this very isolated farm, uh, the two men had run to in their panic, banging on her door. She even said that they they came running out of the woods like two wee frightened schoolgirls. They were in a very huh. agitated and nervous state. And that's really, I mean, in a sense, um, about being sexist, that's that's a lady opening the door at night to two strange men, saying that they were very frightened. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, clearly they must have been very, very scared. So, you, know, there's, you have to remember Scotland, it's, it's, uh, it's a trifling. 1.9% of its land mass is devoted to urban sprawl. The rest is just open land. And that's, um, it's, it's a big area. It's a big area with not many people in. So, yeah, yeah, great. Some great sightings up there. There's also... Um, a fantastic sighting, you may have heard me speak of this one before, um, in Abernethy Forest. This is this area is closer to Loch Ness, not so far from Loch Ness. And uh, this was made by a primate keeper in 2012. I mention it all the time because it's such, just such a good um, qualification of a sighting that somebody had worked with primates in some very big zoos in the UK for 37 years would have seen this creature and and described it uh, so well. Um, His name is slightly disguised. His name is Hal Smith. And um, he'd worked, as I say, in zoos for for about 37 years. And he was retired eventually because he was beaten, almost beaten to death by a chimp. And he was badly injured. He was retired. And he he and his brother, afterwards, they used to always enjoy wild camping in Scotland, after my description. Why would they? But them? Um, yes, they <laughs> yes. went there while camping, and uh, I guess they don't call it wild for no reason. And um, they were up there in 2012 in August, and they were uh, they went out hunting with just small air rifles because we don't really have guns so much here. The rabbit hunting in um something they were calling the rabbit field uh, because there were so many rabbits, and the next morning we were going to catch their own breakfast. And they headed towards this huge blackberry bush they noticed the night before. And um, being very quiet, his brother was behind him because he got a bit of a heavy footfall. And after a few steps, he can't hear his brother walking behind him anymore. And he looks back to see this wide open sort of glare, you know, uh, this wide open jaw and this glare in his, his eyes. He's looking towards the blackberry bush. And he sees a dark figure crouching down, it's back to them about 50 feet away. So, about five or two crouched down. It looked like it was eating berries from the bush. Uh, from, from the way its shoulders were moving and the way it was hunched over. Then it raises its head a little, turning to, to the side as if it hears them, it stands up and turns to look straight at them. And he said it was about seven to eight feet tall, wow. covered in jet black hair. Uh, except for the upper chest and face. Its skin was very dark, except for the bottom look, which was pink. It had a wide nose and large eyes. And then he says, and this is a qualification from a primate keeper, its features reminded me of an older bonobo chimpanzee, but the face was much flatter, especially around the mouth. So hardly any muzzle, but he's talking about. He mm. was going bald on top to my eyes. And he also sent me a picture of a, a balding bon- bonobo chimpanzee to sort of show me what he meant. And it's a startling, you know, it's a startling qualification of a sighting, to my mind. He was scared. He said he was scared for his life. He even dropped the gun and sort of just stared at it. And it it didn't make any threatening movements towards them. It it just turned around, walked to the tree line, looked back one more time to see if they were following it, and then it was gone. And he looked back see what his brother's reaction was only to find he wasn't there he'd run off <laughs>
3: <laughs> and
2: when I got back to the he got back to the campsite he was already packing up and getting everything <laughs> in the car because of course you would if you think like there's an eight foot tall yes eight, it's not supposed to exist in the forest you're camping in what normal a human being would stay there you know maybe <laughs> I would stay um, but I don't know I'm not even sure if I would stay but, yeah, so, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing to him. He became sort of a secretive, I suppose, bigfoot researcher after that. And, um, you know, even met some other witnesses. But to me, it's always been one of the best qualifications. He saw it. I asked him, did he think it was a hominid? Did he think it was a... Did he think it was simian or a hominid? And he said to his eyes, what he saw was a simian, and not a hominid, it was not human in any form. To me, it was just a big ape, like a very upright gorilla. And the arms and thighs were huge, just like a gorilla, but the face was much flatter, but still very ape-like. And that was his take on the whole situation. He saw an ape. Now, that could be his prejudice, by the way, because he's so used to dealing with apes. He could translate what he saw to ape. Mm -hmm. I think they're apes, so it was a good qualification for me. But that that was his take. I saw... A huge bipedal ape I'd never experienced before or knew to known to exist uh, in my 37 years as a as a prime keeper. Interesting.
1: That's very interesting.
2: Mm, I, um, Scotland.
1: I didn't even know before I heard your uh, interview on Nobu that the I had heard a little bit about Bigfoot over in the UK, but I hadn't heard a whole lot. So that really intrigued me. Uh, do you get many encounters there? I think you had said there was five hundred. Was that just in Scotland?
2: No, um, Deborah Hettler's map has over five hundred now. I think they seem to to cover around about forty, fifty year period with some very historical ones. There's a you no, know, there's um, controversy about the the newness, the relative <coughs> newness of the sightings. Hmm. But you could also put a lot of that down to the, to being such a small community and one of the main collectors having our own sighting only, you know, around about three and a half decades ago, uh, almost four decades ago. So, I don't know. There is, historically, we do have something called the woodwows
3: mm-hmm.
2: and the green Man. And the woodwows, they were hairy forest-like creatures that um, were meant to inhabit or rule the forest in some way. They do appear on lots of the tapestries and the noble heraldry of our European noble families, our European uh, noble families and European noble families um, throughout the Middle you know, the the medieval period and the Middle Ages. Um, And they're also all over our cathedrals and churches. There's carvings of them in wood and stone and bas-reliefs in place of gargoyles and and things like that. Hmm. So that's very interesting. Some of them are very, very man-like but covered in hair in a stylistic sort of way others are very conical, head-shaped man-like figures covered in hair and look very ape-like and this of course would be going back to a time when we weren't really aware of apes Mm -hmm. in this part of the world so there could be some qualification there but there are many other ancient pagan things wrapped into it often pictured carrying a club for instance, but that's also a you know that's also a an ancient uh, pagan depiction of Heracles or Janus, which oh. the, the Romans would have brought here. So there could be some ex- explanation for that particular representation or the, the, the derivation of it into the woodwolves. You know, I'm just trying to be honest about it. But mm-hmm. at least there is something there that says, hundreds of years ago, we were. It, whether it's first or second hand depicting and drawing and carving hairy tall bipedal men in this country
1: it's fascinating how this creature is seems to be all over the globe um, you know Australia even has mm. what they refer to as the yaoi Yowie, it's just yeah. fascinating yeah I mean the, it there has is, there has to be something because every, everyone seems to have the same
2: creature. We have to think is it like is it like dragon lore? Mm-hmm. So the, the points behind dragon lore are either the um the symmetry between different dragon legends or different dragon depictions all around the world is because people saw a very similar animal or the human race as a whole, has very similar uh, monsters in mind, since we're all related, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in the way they depict things, that monstrous things tend to have a, a certain similar elaboration. I think it's more to do with, especially coming from a place like Wales, where I grew up, where we have a dragon on our flag. Um, you know, however anatomically uh, incorrect it may be to a pterosaur, it at least has the diamond-shaped tail which most pterosaurs you know, weren't known to have in fossils until you know, a short time ago, and that flag is quite old. So uh, that depiction is quite old. So there's something in that, perhaps. It could be an accident. The wyvern, the griffin, all of these different um, representations of dragons you know, throughout Britain and Europe seem to be, in many respects, very close to you know, large dinosaur lizards or, or pterosaurs. And then again, the Woodwars, the um even the satyrs of Greece seem yeah. to have some Bigfoot-like um, translations to their appearance. And of course, what would have been, how would our superstitious forebears have translated something that they didn't know to be a part of nature and that was elusive and it could you know, hide itself at will other than something that was a paranormal entity or a spiritual mm-hmm. entity of some kind like the satyrs? Um, instead of some creature that lived out in nature somewhere that was just very wary of people and, and always has been.
1: Have you had any encounters with Bigfoot yourself? How did you get into this research?
2: Um, I haven't had any encounters. I've had a fake one, which I use as a, an example of how your mind can play tricks on you. Mm-hmm. When I was up in the, the hills in around Loch Ness Um I'll tell you about that in a bit. I got into it as a young teenager, I think. Uh, I was a singer, actually, from age 12 onwards. I was a, a singer in a rock band and different types of music. I think I'm on year 32 this year. Yes. I actually 32. knew
1: about your singing, and I was going to ask you about that after. <laughs>
2: oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah, I always wanted to be a singer, but I was. Um, my other obsession was wildlife and and cryptozoology as well, about or hidden animals. That was my main interest, and in not really anything paranormal. And I just got into the yeah, same old stuff, the Arthur C. Clarke stuff, the In Search mm-hmm. of Programs, mm-hmm. um, all of these great 70s and 80s um, series that were about mysterious things. I loved it. And I would just keep clippings if a sighting came up, especially with things like Nessie, which is quite regular. I would keep the clipping in the paper, and, and later you know, save a news article or an email, or some new site that, that mentions something that seems significant. That's it. And I did it for years and years and years. And then finally, in 2016, after um, seven years of working, seven or eight years of working uh, non-stop full-time in central London, um, we had our second child. And I said, look, you don't really have any hobbies anymore. You're not really singing so much. And... Um, You know, you okay, writing, why didn't you write something? What about this monstrous thing that you're into? (laughs)
3: Uh,
2: You could write a blog or you could do something. And originally, originally said, well, I'll I'll write a TV series and I'll try and sell it to friends of mine in TV. And uh, I wrote it and they were like, well, mm, I don't know. And plus, you know, somebody's just going to steal this off you and you should write a book first so it's yours. Mm. That's harder to, to take. So I said, okay, that's fine. I said, what are you going to call it? I said, I'll call it Beasts of Britain, and it'll be the first of many ones, and I'll do different regions and countries around the world. And I just started writing it like an idiot who would never written a book before. I've written songs, <laughs> but that's completely different, and uh, which probably is, explains the the horrible addiction to um, rhyming and alliteration that, that's present throughout the entire text of the book. <laughs> um, and I, I'm not going to stop. I just can't. If, it, if it's some sort of alliteration, Possibility of alliteration and I just have to take it. I just can't um, I can't resist it. Anyway, so I started writing it I wrote the first one and I had a there was a, um, a cryptozoological uh, organization here a very old one called the CFC Center for Fortean Zoolog- Zoology, so more of a 14 group really but for animals hmm. And uh, John Dimes was the leader of that and he said yeah, we'll publish your book <clears throat> just write it and then in with the script. They published lots of people like Nick Redfern and Carl Schubert and whoever else, uh, Richard Freeman. And um, I sent it to him when it was finished and he said, well, look, we're really busy. We can't, uh, there's no way we can do this before six months from now. And I said, well, that's no good. I've told people it's coming. I've been releasing blogs from the book while I've been writing all the way along and doing interviews. So I was interviewing and writing and saying I was doing a bookkeeping before it was finished, actually. <laughs> and yeah, and I said, I've told people it's coming out. And then somebody said, just go and do it on Amazon, somebody told me. And turns out the um, the percentage was higher. They were still in the same position of having no promotion done. But they didn't have, you know, a good name like the CFC. to. They didn't have the stamp on it. Mm, yep. I had to do it myself. That's fair enough. So I did that. And then... Two years later, I looked at it and thought that's kind of ropey and a lot of things in there don't make sense. Rewrite it. So I rewrote it and brought out the the updated version, which was actually really different uh, last year. And um, now I'm writing Beasts of North America. I'm about halfway through, keeping it top secret. (laughs) But um, yes, I haven't told anybody anything that's in the book. At all. Um, so as opposed to the first one, where people almost knew most of the contents before it came out, <laughs> um, this one, I haven't told anybody any part of it whatsoever.
1: Please let me know when it's completed and released.
2: Mm, I'm hoping for end of June. It's been a bit delayed, but uh, yeah, I'm ho- hoping for end of June. Yeah. Nice. Yeah.
1: I can't wait to find out more information about that.
2: Yes, it's going to be good in all of North America. It's not just the U.S. It's not just Canada, or Mexico. You know, it's Caribbean. It's uh, it's Greenland. Oh wow! It's everything. It's nice. The entire geographical North America. Mm.
1: That's interesting.
2: Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, to any listeners out there, if you have any stories, especially ones in lesser-known areas. I'm um, pretty good on the U.S., although I still expe- accept um, sightings fair. Uh, but anything, you know, if you have something up in Nunavut, <laughs> right, great. That would be interesting, me. yeah. Or Baffin Island or, you know, uh, uh, any fringe of Greenland or anywhere that's really random. I'd love to hear about it.
1: That would be very, very interesting, yeah. Mm. I'm really looking forward to that.
2: Mm, hopefully it's going to be good and not just a lot of. Dad waffle and alliteration. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite cryptid?
2: Ah, uh, I'm a lake monster guy. I just love that whole living dino. I I know they're not dinosaurs, but you know, I love that whole living dino aspect of things. It was my first love in cryptozoology, really. Mm. And uh, I'm very friendly with Scott Modis of and uh, of uh, Lake Zombie plesiosaur Society. And, Roland Watson, the author, the great Nessie researcher and author of Loch Ness Mystery Blog and um, uh, Water Horses of Loch Ness and, and many others. I just, um, that was always, a, I've been to Loch Ness a bunch of times and other lakes in Britain, like Lake Windermere that also has a similar monster called Nessie. Tallinn, Tegid in uh, North Wales, or Lake Ballas, it's called in English, um, has a, another lake monster they call Teggy. Uh, all Nessie like monsters. Mm-hmm. Fantastic Nessie like monsters. That's what I love. Uh, there's a book actually called um, uh, Sea Serpents and Lake Monsters of the British Isles by Paul Harrison, who's actually more of a crime writer. I think he's been discredited for making up a few crime stats recently. But the book is really good. It's really balanced and it goes up to 2001. But it covers England, England, Ireland. Scotland and Wales, and gives you the historical reports of lake and sea monsters in those areas in a very matter-of-fact way,
3: hmm. without
2: interfering, as I would, you know, with his personal opinions on things.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, yeah, it's just great. I just love that. I would love to do a whole coastal tour of the UK and every lake in between. Remembering there's 31,466 lochs and lochans in Scotland. Wow. There's a lot of land to cover. There is. Well, do you yes. think
1: you'll? Do you think you will explore
2: some of them? Some of them. I, I'll go to Morar later this year. I'm going to do another little documentary with Chris on Loch Ness, and we want to look at the um, the inlets in and out either side of, of the loch, the ways out to the sea,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and also Morar because it's it's a lot closer to the sea, and it's it's the water is very clear there. And it's very underpopulated and desolate. Not many people visit there. And uh, a lot of the loch is actually not accessible by land, so there's there's really good patches there we can just get in and have a you know, have a good look about. There was actually a great sighting there too. I have to tell you about that. Off, oh, let me find it. It's one of my favourite ones because if it's descriptive. Maybe there's two in fact. There's one where the the river Morar meets the the loch. There's a a shingle bank. A bank. A shingle is like small sort of rocks, uh, hard rocks. There's a a shingle bank there uh, between the river and the loch. The loch is over a 1,000 feet deep in places. It's very deep. The river is relatively deep, but the shingle bank is only a couple of feet deep. So there was a sighting there. Um, Let me just find it for you because it's one of my favorites. Sorry, I'm just scrolling through. Now, my memory is is dreadful, so I have to... um, (laughs) I have to get it up to you, otherwise, i'll I'll mess it up. Um, okay,
1: while you look that up, I'll mention you probably are already aware, but we also have a uh, a popular lake monster here in Canada in British Columbia called Ogopogo.
2: I know, I yeah. know. I'm a big Arling gal fan, actually.
1: I've been uh, fishing on that uh, on that lake with my grandparents many years ago, and uh, they had said that they had uh, some friends, a doctor and his wife that were uh, fishing and they actually saw Ogopogo and I was fascinated. And my ma- wow. my grandmother said, you know, uh, if she saw Ogopogo she would be terrified. I was fascinated, I wanted to see it, <laughs> but we I, we had no sightings.
2: Well, I think this is the thing with, um, this is the thing with cryptid sightings in general. I've asked this question. I've been out on Loch Ness a couple of times when it started to get a bit dark. And when, by the way, it's very pristine there. So probably similar to Lake Oregon. once it's dark, it's just nothing but blackness.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, I've been out on Lake uh, Champlain as well after yes. dark. And what starts to happen actually is that you realize that you're in a real situation that if something that's 40 feet long should suddenly appear and take a dislike to you, you're very vulnerable. Yes. And I think that's what affects people. When they actually see something unbelievable like that, they don't know what's going to happen next. And they think, well, this is a real situation. This is not like, it's only a tale to tell after the experience is finished and you have come home safely, right? While it's happening, it's a terrifying <laughs> encounter. Yes. And I think that's you know, it's the difference. But I would still like to see him. So let me give you the sighting. Um, one of many. So on 27th of November, 1975, Two brothers, Charles and Donald Simpson, were driving towards Brack Arena uh, around uh, Loch Mora on a bird-watching expedition. The Mora River, at least the lock, flows over a narrow ridge of gravel so that for a short distance it's only a couple of feet deep. At 3pm, just as they were passing that spot, Charles, who was watching the road, had heard his brother, who was driving, suddenly gasp. What Donald had seen was a robust 20-foot-long animal which rose out of the river less than 40 feet from the car, It lurched across the gravel bar and sank into the deeper waters of the loch. He said it had smooth brown skin like a drum and commented particularly on the muscles in its powerful hindquarters, which were unmistakable as it hauled itself over the gravel bar. He saw no ears or eyes but said there was what looked like a trunk trailing along the side of the body. Um, And shortly afterwards, uh, under his supervision, a neighbour did a small watercolour painting of what he'd seen which you can find actually on... Roland Watson's Loch Ness Mystery Blog. He's got a great copy of that. And then there's another one, just very quickly, by a, a joiner from Edinburgh called Robert Duff. And he had what qualified as the clearest sighting of the animal on 8th of July 1969. Fishing from a boat in Mobley Bay on the southern shore, where the water's no more than 16 feet deep and crystal clear, he spotted a monster lizard lying motionless on Loch's white leaf strewn bottom, looking up at him. Estimated the creature was 20 feet long, with a snake-like earless head, slit eyes, and a wide mouth. His body was grey-brown with rough skin, and it had four limbs, with three toes visible on each front foot, plus a tail. Hmm. He was so unnerved that he left the area immediately. Who can blame him? In a small <laughs> rowing boat, in 16 feet of water. A 20-foot lizard beneath wow. you. You might, you know, you might leave the area. There's many more, but more art to me. It's, it's, it's exciting. Because at least you can see, and in Loch Ness you can't see anything. The peat completely stains the water.
1: It's some place I've always wanted to go to. is uh, Scotland because I think I'd mentioned to you before my grandfather was born in uh, Oban, and uh, oh. I've always, I've always wanted to go there to, to see where my grandfather grew up as a young lad, um, and you know, and visit all these places, uh, Loch Ness, and go all over the UK, um, but. So far, I have not had the pleasure of going, but it definitely is on the top of my bucket list.
2: I'm sure you will. I think you'll probably find a lot of the topography very similar on the smaller scale to, to Canada. That's to what I hear. Hmm.
3: Yeah.
2: I would imagine that, that Scots would be very happy in Canada Highlanders, especially in Canada and, and vice versa. Yeah. Really. It's, um, yeah. But yeah, that whole area open all right there. It's, it's beautiful. It really is very beautiful. I think that's right on the coast, actually. Open, isn't it?
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, from what I understand, it's a. F- it used to be a fishing community. I don't know if it still is now.
2: Yeah. Uh, I think I'm sure it's near Loch Linia, yeah, actually. I'll um, uh, bring it up now. Yeah, it's not far from there. It's, it's actually in the main. You've got the main sort of sea there, but it's. It's definitely near Loch yeah. Anyway. It's funny, yeah. for
1: years, my father and I were mispronouncing it because of the way it's spelt. We kept saying it was a, a boyne And finally, um, I met someone from Scotland and they said, where? And and I spelt it and they said, oh, no, 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 that's Oban. I was like, oh, okay.
2: Yeah, yeah. The, the Celtic, the Scottish Celtic yeah. is very difficult. It's very yeah. I mean, I grew up in Wales where they have Welsh and that's very hard. And essentially, if you don't know the pronunciation of the alphabet, you're lost. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely lost. There's a well, few places I mean, like that in
1: Canada yeah. as well.
2: Mm, I'm sure. I'm sure. But those being named by, by local tribes, the places that are difficult to pronounce, or by different European uh, settlers.
1: Yes, yes. It's fascinating how, uh, I was just telling this to my daughter the other day, um, how over in England and Scotland, and uh, there's so many different accents, depending what part you're from and it's such a mm. small it's such a small area compared to canada and so many different accents
2: well they did a, a genetic test here uh, very recently in the uk where they were uh, i don't know where they got the samples from maybe from from ancient burials and things like that but they were able to um, test people in different regions in different areas of the uk and what they saw was that genetically the the current homogeneous population, anyway, that of um, native breeds,
3: mm-hmm.
2: were almost exactly genetically the same as the people who inhabited that area a thousand years ago. Really? And so, most people had stayed within their region <clears throat> throughout the country, apart from your know, big hub centres or big cities and mm-hmm. things like that. Most people were the same in every area from a thousand years ago. So, people lived up in uh, Lancashire or um, Yorkshire, or these different places were the same people who were there a thousand years ago genetically. And of course That's you've got not four races, but six, six races in the UK actually. So with their own languages, you have the English, you have the Welsh, you have the Scottish, and the Northern Irish, you know, technically.
3: Mm-hmm. Then
2: you have the Manx and Cornish. Also two Celtic peoples with their own language, although they're almost extinct those languages now, they're still genetically different peoples. That's that's the genetic original makeup. And even that is vastly reduced from what it used to be. And if you look at the UK, it's the different accents, especially it's a testimony to invasion and Mm -hmm. tribalism. And all the different things that happened during those times, you know, with the Vikings there, like in Yorkshire, even York, York is a Viking word, I think and parts of Scotland, and then further towards the West, it's very much more Celtic because those places were hard to get into. People are smaller, you know, um, darker, for example. Interesting.
1: It's very interesting. Mm. Do you th- do you think um, where there's such a diverse um, ethnicity, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, perhaps there was a time where people brought their own myths and legends with them, and that 's where some of the the crypto the cryptids uh, come from today
2: I think definitely yes, and I think it 's also probably responsible um if you look back into the different states in the u s and which you know which uh, settlers originated there
3: mm-hmm.
2: i mean i mean uh, settled there in large numbers you 'd find many of the European and legends were just transported with those peoples and kept alive in some respect. Uh, things like Dogman, especially. Mm-hmm. Werewolves. That's just nothing mm-hmm. but a werewolf. Like there's, yep. there's a chapter of the book, uh, a piece of Britain, called Dogman Rebranding the Werewolf. It's just, surely it's just a less embarrassing thing to say <laughs> um, than werewolf. You say werewolf, you're a bit crazy. You say dogman. It's like, well, what's that? It's kind of a creature, mm-hmm. isn't it? Um, but European folklore... Which is essentially the backbone of, you know, um, white America anyway, um, mm-hmm. and their their the myths and legends is werewolf folklore. <laughs> that's um, that's that's the whole background of it. So, you know, did has the resurgence of Dogman led to the resurgence of those types of things over here too, or is this a origination point in Europe for? American interest in Bigfoot and Dogman, you know, the Woodrowes, the Green Man, the Wild Man. I don't really know. Either of these things are always with us everywhere. And um in this interconnected world we're just starting to be able to communicate, share those stories mm-hmm. more openly. Or the stories are influencing one another. Now I will tell you one thing about the book, Beast of North America. There's a chapter actually called Forever Finding Bigfoot. And it's just about um, where this resurgence came from in recent years, and how, in fact, you can base the whole, almost the entire cryptozoological conference community anyway, an online community, on the success of that show almost 10 years ago, that probably there would be nothing in existence right now. Most of these podcasts we wouldn't be doing, exactly. you know, whatever the show was for its worth. Mm-hmm. It... <clears throat> It normalised things. It expanded things at a time when people were still in chat rooms, right? Yes. Um, yeah. So it's it's an interesting concept, and I I would like to talk to Cliff and Boba about that at some point. You know, what would do you realise where we would be right now if this show that was a bit uncomfortable for you at points and you know pulled your your um, morals to the edge now and again you had to rein in mm-hmm. if the show hadn't taken off. Where would everybody else be? And that's what I'm interested in cryptozoology. What is the origination point? When Lauren Coleman said in 2008 or nine, there may be an alligator, I think that's the day, I could be wrong, um, explosion in New York sewers of mm. um, you know, rogue alligators and people would be in danger of getting attacked. I don't know exactly what he said, but there was a suggestion there could be a population explosion. You know, if we'd all based future sightings on that. We, we should ma- imagine that people are getting attacked in New York state or the city or whatever every single weekend, right, by <laughs> yeah. alligators. But no, there's never been any reports since, right, nothing. Who are the people in the background of this that we're basing cryptozoological law on? And is our lack of questioning them or what they've come up with leading to precepts that we base everything else on? And that was one of the main points with the trees, the stick structures. Some point, somebody said something. It was respected. We've all followed it. Who is it, and why do we think it's valid?
1: Good questions.
2: Mm. Rant. <laughs> <laughs> Rant. Sorry.
1: That's all quite all right. <laughs> I find uh with communication, you, you you can find out so much so quickly now with with communication this day and age that I find more and more people. Who are, are having encounters with any kind of cryptid um, are coming forward more often now to say, "Hey, I'm not the only one who who's encountered this," and it's nice to know. So, um, in a way, technology is, is can be good.
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. I'm all turned around in technology. I used to be so against the whole thing and wouldn't even switch on the computer. And oh, really. Um, sitting there with my book. And now I'm just like, well, actually, you know, <laughs> uh, when we were all watching VHS, I wasn't complaining. There, were, there was no Super 8, <laughs> right? Yeah. And when we were watching DVDs, I was like, oh, but I want to really take ages to rewinding this thing and get the tape all spooled up and have to wind it back <laughs> into the cassette. I was like, no, DVDs are great. And when yes. DVDs left, I was like, oh, but I've got my collection still. Do I really want to stream? And now it remembers exactly where I was watching it every single time. And I don't have to load it up and I hope it's not scratched. It is better, actually. But, yeah, change takes time to get used to.
1: It sure does. Well, I know uh, we only have a few minutes to go because you have to to leave us. So, um, I will be... Oh, that's quite all right. You're a busy busy guy today. Um, But I will be adding links in the show notes when this gets released. But why don't you tell us where people can find you and find your books?
2: Okay. So... Um, best place to find the book, amazon.com uh, or amazon.wherever you are if you're in a different country. Um, I have made it as cheap as possible. So the the Kindle and the paperback is at the cheapest possible price that it will let me set it. Mm. I just would like you to have it. Um, you can also find me on facebook.com forward slash beasts of. That's a good place to find me. I'm always there. Instagram. Twitter, the same, Tumblr. Generally, Facebook is good. You can message me. You can ask me questions. You can talk to me. I will talk back to you. Perhaps a little too much at, at points. <laughs> but, um, I will, I will answer you. Will I stop answering you? Is the issue. I will definitely speak to you. <laughs> um, and then there's a website too, beastofbritain.com. But it's a little behind it's updating.
1: Perfect. I'm definitely, I definitely want to check out that book. And folks, uh, go to YouTube and check out Sticks and Stones, UK Bigfoot. Um, highly recommend it. I hope you'll be doing yes. more documentaries.
2: We will. Later in the year, we will Good. be doing a few other bits and pieces and just trying to get a few of the, the British things under wraps.
1: Nice. And I'm looking forward to the North American book. You, again, you'll have to let me know when it's released.
2: Yes, I mean July, hopefully by July. I've got two months of solid writing ahead of me. And um, if I get through it and it looks reasonable, I will publish it.
1: Fingers crossed. Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Andy. I really appreciated this. You can.
2: Thank you you very much.
1: And you take care.
2: You too. You too. Bye.